the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. He said this to them. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done for the saving of many lives. You see his perspective in that. And the principle for us is view your opposition as an opportunity. God brings unexpected good out of undesirable situations. So look for the good things that God is doing in the midst of something that is difficult because God often brings good things out of what other people intend for harm. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Ezra. Have you ever felt God leading in a certain direction only for you to come up against major roadblocks? This can be confusing and discouraging, but take heart. When God's doing a great work, there will always be great opposition from the enemy. In today's message, we'll hear how true this was for the people rebuilding God's temple in Ezra's day. They had to overcome multiple delays and attacks before finishing. Pastor Gary will share with us what specific, practical steps we can take whenever we face opposition from others as we follow God. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary and Ezra chapters 4 through 5 in today's message titled, Expect Some Opposition. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 4, so turn there if you would in your Bibles. While you're finding your place there, let me just give a quick intro so we can uh, find our place there at chapter 4. But here's what we've been learning up to this point through the book of Ezra. The Jews are engaged in a building project here, and they've reestablished themselves in the community. But up until this point, through the first three chapters of Ezra, so far from chapter 1, we've learned that God has a providential plan for our lives. From chapter 2, we learned about how everyone whose heart God moves will go, will give, and we'll get involved. And then from chapter 3, we looked at how we will always keep Jesus' priority around here. We will always keep worship the practice. And we must not let the memories of the past rob us of seeing what God is doing in the present. Now today we're going to take a look at chapters 4, 5, and some of chapter 6, really with just one theme in mind. Because in those chapters, you're going to see one particular theme, and you'll notice it pretty quickly as I start to read here from chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So that's what I'm going to read, and then we'll pray. From Ezra 4, starting at verse 1, it says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel... They came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, 
Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God, and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esharadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. All right, so if you have subtitles in your Bibles like I do, the beginning of chapter 4, there's a subtitle right there. Do you see it? Opposition to the rebuilding. That's the theme of chapters 4, 5, and most of chapter 6, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. So in our story here, the Jews begin to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem after they come back from 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And no sooner do they lay the foundation to the Lord's temple when their neighbors oppose them. Their neighbors oppose them. Now, their neighbors don't come against them militarily. The neighbors aren't trying to engage them in war. What their neighbors are doing to oppose the building of the temple of the Lord is something much more subtle. Their approach is three ways. Their tactic, three kinds. First, they try to infiltrate the ranks. Maybe we can just help you build your temple so they can sabotage the project from within. That's what's going on here. Then that doesn't work, so then they try to frustrate the plans by hiring legal counsel and legal maneuverings to delay the project. And then thirdly, they try to intimidate the Jews with fear. So it's infiltrate, frustrate, and intimidate. That's what they are about here in this story. Now, who are these people, and why are they so opposed to the building of the Lord's temple. In order to understand who these people are, quick little reminder of history. About 185 years before this story here in Ezra, the Assyrians, who were the most powerful people at the time, they occupied what is today most of Iran and Iraq. The Assyrians came, besieged the northern kingdom of Israel. They deported Jews in the process, and then different from the Babylonians. Remember, the Babylonians come later to the southern kingdom. They deport Jews as well, but the Babylonians let the Jews go back. The Assyrians just dispersed the Jews, and that's why historically they are referred to as the lost tribes of Israel. The ten tribes of the north were just dispersed. They were scattered. And then the Assyrians did something different than what the Babylonians would later do. The Assyrians not only deported the Jews when they came and besieged the northern part of Israel, but then they imported their own people. And they brought Assyrians to live in the land, to intermarry, and to mingle with the Jews. That's what's going on here, because they believed that by intermarrying and intermingling, they would then repatriatize this new territory and make it more allegiant to the Assyrian Empire. So that's what's going on here. And the people of Assyria who intermingled with the Jews settled in the region known in the Bible as Samaria. And their descendants are known in the New Testament as Samaritans. Now, there's this long-standing hostility between Jews and Samaritans. Why? Because the Jews looked at the Samaritans and disparagingly saw them as half-breeds. You're half-Jewish and half-Assyrian. Your Jewish blood has been mixed with the pagan blood of the Assyrians. You're not really one of us. You Samaritans don't lay claim to who we are because you don't belong to us. 
The Samaritans, on the other hand, they believed that they were part of Judaism because they had Jewish blood, and so therefore they embraced some of the tenets of Judaism. For example, even today, and by the way, the Samaritan community today, very, very tiny. In Jesus' day, the Samaritans numbered about a few hundred thousand in the region of Israel. Today, the Samaritan community numbers less than 500 people. And they are located mostly in Nabulus, which is a part of the West Bank. They are neither Israeli nor Arab. They are neither Jewish nor Muslim. They are a very distinct and small community today. But the people that we're reading about here in opposition to the building process were these Samaritans. They held to some of the Jewish tenets of Judaism. They believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, although a slightly different God. And I say that because they only embraced and believed even to this day, the first five books of the Bible. They believe in the prophet Moses and the first five books that he wrote, but they reject the rest of the prophets. They reject the rest of the Old Testament. The Samaritans would practice the feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and Passover, but they rejected the rest of the feasts. So you see, it's the reason why these people come to the Jews and they say, listen, we serve the same God, don't we? And the Jews are like, not really. Because the Samaritans are thinking, we believe some of the tenets that you believe. And the Jews recognize, yeah, you say you believe in God, but you don't accept and embrace the God who reveals himself in all the pages of Scripture. You have a very narrow interpretation of God, not the same God that we worship. By the way, side note. When people come up to you and say, hey, we worship the same God, don't we? You better investigate and drill down a little bit and figure out, well, what do they define? Who do they define as God? Before you say yes, you better understand what is their definition. Because if they take just a few select verses or a few ideas about God, but it's not the sum total of who God is, you don't worship the same God. So with all due respect, you need to love Mormons. But when they say that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And you need to love Jehovah's Witnesses. But when they say that Jesus is really the archangel Michael, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And we should love Muslims. But when Muslims say that Jesus is a prophet inferior to Muhammad and that Judas was crucified in the place of Jesus, which is what the Quran teaches, you should reject that. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not Jesus of the Bible. So a lot of people can say, oh, yeah, we worship the same God figure that out a little further and investigate what kind of God they're talking about. Because when the Samaritans come to the Jews and say, we're kind of all on the same team, aren't we? And we're worshiping the same God. We're playing for the same coach, right? The Jews go, not really. You have no part in us. You're not going to help us build the temple. And when they say that, the Samaritans come unglued. And what do they do? They hire lawyers. They get all lawyered up. It's right here in the Bible. Look at verse 5. We read it a moment ago. Verse 5 says, They hired counselors to work against the Jews and frustrate their plans. What are lawyers called today? Counselors? They didn't hire psychologists here, people. All right? It's not that kind of a counselor. They hired legal advice. They hired attorneys. And the attorneys get together and they write a letter to King Artaxerxes. Now, Remember your history a little bit here, and the Bible talks about this because in Ezra you read about King Cyrus of Persia, King Xerxes, King Artaxerxes, and King Darius. There's a lot of kings mentioned in Ezra. That's because they are succeeded by different guys. Cyrus is the first king of Persia who allows the Jews to go back to Babylon. But he's replaced by Xerxes, his son. And after him is Artaxerxes, Xerxes' brother. 
By the way, if you have a King James Bible, it uses the Hebrew transliteration of that Persian name, and it says Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes are the same people. And so now the king on the throne is Artaxerxes. Cyrus has been replaced a while ago. These lawyers get together. They send a letter to King Artaxerxes, who's in Babylon, Iraq, at the headquarters of the Persian Empire. They say to Artaxerxes, these Jewish people are trying to build their temple again. You know, they mean trouble. They only are going to be trouble for the kingdom. And, and who gave them the right to build this temple anyway? And so we ask you to issue a temporary restraining order to prevent them from building their temple. Now, Artaxerxes reads the letter and he doesn't do his homework. A time has passed. He forgot about the order by Cyrus to allow the Jews to go back and to build the temple. So what does Artaxerxes do? He gives them the temporary restraining order. He sends a letter back and he says, yeah, tell these people to stop building. I don't know who gave them permission. They can't build any longer. And look at the way at the end of chapter 4, look at your Bibles at the end of chapter 4. When they read his letter, look what happens here. Chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. Verse 23 says, As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshai, the secretary, and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. All right, write in the margin of your Bible, if you're able, that the building project stops for 15 years. There's a gap at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 of 15 years. They stopped building. They got this injunction against them and the Jews stopped the building of the temple of the Lord. And it wasn't until the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, who have books that they wrote named after them in your Old Testaments, those guys, Haggai and Zechariah, come into the scene here. They prophesied during this time period in Ezra. And Haggai and Zechariah come along and say, listen... You Jewish people, you're going by this old temporary restraining order, but isn't it God that wants us to build the temple for him? And doesn't God supersede government? And so Haggai and Zechariah said, get off your tuchuses and start building again. I don't know if there's a plural to tuchus, but I just made it up. And so they said, get off your tuchus and start building again. And the Jews rose up and they're like, yeah, we're going to build again. We don't care what Artaxerxes said. And they start building. And when they start building again, the Samaritans come out of the woodwork again. Like, who do you guys think you are? And what do you think you're doing? You're building again. Don't you remember 15 years ago, we got this temporary restraining order? And the Jews are like, yeah, yeah, we understand. But we're going to build anyway. We're doing it for the Lord. And so they lawyer up again, the Samaritans do. And now the new king on the throne is Darius. They send a letter to Darius. Same kind of stuff. Darius gets the letter from the attorneys, and instead of just believing what attorneys say, no offense to the attorneys, the Darius just decides, you know what, you can't really trust a lawyer. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to, I'm going to get sued for that. We, we're going to research, we're going to do our homework here, and we're going to figure out if there ever was an edict issued by a previous king. And he has some good, bright law assistance, some legal assistance, some legal aids. And they find the original order by King Cyrus. So Darius then issues this scathing rebuke to these attorneys, to the Samaritan people. And he says, listen, I found the original order. Stop interfering with them. They're supposed to build. Let them build. In fact, and here's what he adds. He says, I want you to help them and to give them money to build the project. <laughs> Isn't that rich? 
And then what I love about the whole thing that Darius says here, oh, this part is delicious. Go to chapter 6. I want you to see this part here, chapter 6. At the end of his edict, he says this as part of it. Chapter 6, verse 11. He says, furthermore, I decree that if anyone changes this edict, a beam is to be pulled from his house and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. <laughs> wow. And he says, and for this crime, his house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Isn't that awesome? And so he basically says, if you don't give to the project, we're going to go to your house. We're going to pull a beam out of your house, and we're going to impale you on it. We're going to stick you on it like a shish kebab. <laughs> but the takeaway from all of this is, it's number eight on our list. The takeaway, obviously, is this from chapter four, that we should expect some opposition. We should expect some opposition. And by the way... When you live out your lives in a way that stands for truth and honors God, you're going to get some opposition too. It's just going to happen. Now, as far as it relates to our church, and then I'll come back at the end and talk about some principles that help all of us to deal with opposition that we might receive in general. But as far as it relates to our church, we've experienced our share of opposition. Just a quick summary for those of you who don't know. As soon as we got approval from the Leesburg Town Council to build our building, we were sued too by neighbors. I mean, when I read this in Ezra, I'm like, yeah, this is pretty similar stuff here. The owner of the commercial property sued the town and sued us, saying that he had a vested interest in our property and in our application and didn't basically like it for a couple of reasons, and sued us. And he won in circuit court. And the judge sided with him because there's been a long-standing practice in the Commonwealth of Virginia that before you develop property, you have to get the permission of a commercial property, at least. You have to get the permission of adjoining landowners, which we didn't because we knew from the beginning he didn't like our project. So we were sued, and, uh, and we lost in circuit court. And then we took it up to the Virginia Supreme Court, and we won a unanimous decision. It was a landmark decision. It, it changed property applications in the Commonwealth um, forever or until the next lawsuit, I suppose. So, you know, God gave us favor. We didn't lose 15 years in the project like you read here in the story. We lost about three to four in the whole legal wrangling thing. But, you know, God's timing is perfect, so it's all okay. And, you know, we're on track with God's timetable, so it's all okay. It was no surprise to the Lord. In addition to getting some opposition from the adjoining landowner and the whole lawsuit and everything, we've gotten some opposition, too, in the community. People who, you know, don't necessarily like churches, like Christians, and particularly like a larger church. And so whenever Leesburg Today and Loudon Times Mirror would run stories on our church because of the application, and it is, you know, it'll be the largest building in the town of Leesburg. And so, you know, that got some press coverage. And then especially the landmark decision with the Supreme Court, that generated a lot of press coverage, too. Whenever they would run articles, you could go online and people would submit comments in response to the articles. And let me tell you, most of the comments... I mean, no exaggeration, 90% of the comments that people left online at the newspapers were opposed to us. And kind of ugly stuff. I'm not bothered by it, I just want you to know. Let's not have any illusions. I mean, not everybody in the community likes us. And the reason they don't like us primarily is because we're taking a stand for truth and what the Bible says. And whenever you do that in your lives and the life of our church, some people will not like you. 
okay? And they will be opposed to you. That's just the way it's going to be. But let me transition real quickly, and I'm almost actually out of time, but I want to leave you with five principles for your own life so that we can deal with people who might oppose us from time to time. It's going to happen, so we need to prepare for it and understand that it's just reality. So I'm going to go through these five quicker than you can probably write them down, but the good thing is this teaching will be posted on the archives, and you can pull up the archive and slow it down and look at it one by one. Here's the first one besides the opposition, okay? Here's the first one. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? So principle number one, as long as your motives are pure and your actions honor God, then it doesn't really matter what other people may think. Get that one. Okay, because you're going to get all twisted in your head, worried about what everybody else thinks about you. It doesn't really matter when you know that your motives are pure and your actions are honorable before the Lord. People can think what they want to think. It doesn't really matter. Okay, number two. Jesus said in Matthew 5:39, "But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also." What is he basically saying? Principle number 2, he's basically saying, "Don't retaliate when people oppose you. You can object, you can address it with them, just don't take revenge." Okay, we need to get this. Part of human nature is to get even to settle the score. All right, a lot of what the Bible teaches us is very counterintuitive to our own instincts. Because God wants us to rise above some of those fleshly, natural responses. Don't retaliate. Don't try to get revenge. Number three, Jesus also said in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So principle number three is just that. Pray for those who oppose you or mistreat you. You know, you might be surprised how God will turn their hearts if you pray for them. And by the way, in the process of praying, God will also keep our own hearts right so that they don't get bitter to somebody who mistreats us or opposes us. So pray and love them. Number four, in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph had been betrayed by his own brothers. And at the end of it, he said this to them, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done for the saving of many lives. You see his perspective in that. And the principle for us is view your opposition as an opportunity. God brings unexpected good out of undesirable situations. So look for the good things that God is doing in the midst of something that is difficult. Because God often brings good things out of what other people intend for harm. And finally, number five... Out of Proverbs 25, and this is also repeated in Romans 12. Proverbs 25 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The principle is, your continued kindness to those who oppose you makes room for God's justice, and you will be rewarded. The idea of coals upon somebody's head is a statement of divine judgment. In Psalm 140.10, it says, Let burning coals fall upon them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. The idea is this. It is not our place to even the score. It is our place to get out of the way and let God do whatever he might. Now, don't be surprised if God gives mercy to people that you want God to give justice to because thankfully he gives mercy to us when we deserve justice and so we need to be very careful about our perspective our role is to be kind and to be loving and to serve people and to look out for them because it is that kind of kindness that it says at the end of that verse that God will reward 
So get out of God's way. Don't try to take matters into your own hand. If people are opposed to you or mistreat you, just treat them kindly. You know the old expression, kill them with kindness. But let the Lord do what he wants to do. Get out of the way. Love them and pray for them. Throughout this Old Testament book, Ezra reminds the Israelites that they are God's people and that God has not forgotten them. We hope that listening to Cornerstone Connection also reminds you that God has not forgotten you and that you belong to Him. If you'd like to learn more about Cornerstone Connection or hear more teachings by Pastor Gary, we have a few ways to do that. One way is downloading our mobile app, or you can subscribe to the Cornerstone Connection podcast. If you look online at cornerstoneconnection.cc, you'll also find additional messages as well as companion resources that offer a deeper look into Pastor Gary's studies. You mean a lot to us here at Cornerstone Connection, and we'd love to hear from you. Our number is 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. Cornerstone Connection comes to you as a ministry of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We'd love to meet you in person, so come see us Sundays at 830, 10, or 1145 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. for our time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today, but join us again for more from God's Word right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling Opens up your eyes Mercy is waiting for you With every sunrise Hope is an open ocean Jump in and you'll find The cornerstones Your connection run towards your new life Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.